All right, we'll go ahead and take a seat. And as you're being seated, let's take our Bibles together and turn to John chapter 20. And this morning we're going to start in verse 11 and move all the way to verse 23. There's a lot going on in these verses. And I want to take some time this morning to unpack all of it. Last week, were you here last week, church? Easter Sunday? Last week, we saw evidence of Jesus' resurrection, the greatest event in human history. I'm not hyperbolizing. I know pastors like to hyperbolize. I'm not. This is the greatest event in human history. And the passage from last week, John 20, 1 through 10, you know, we, we just saw these evidences. We just saw these, these uh, results, you might say, of Jesus' resurrection. But we didn't see Jesus in the flesh, not yet. Not yet. We saw the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And in seeing that, John believed. These were the evidences. We saw the moved stone. We saw the empty tomb. We saw the discarded grave clothes. John saw all of those things. He saw and he believed he was the first person to believe that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. And you know what? If, if this gospel ended there, we would have a great gospel. I mean, and, and that would be a fantastic way to end the book. John saw the empty tomb, and he believed. And he might sum it up by saying, all right, I saw it, I believe it. You believe now that I'm telling you. But, you know, thankfully, John still has more to say. There's actually a lot more in this book in John 20 and 21, these appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. And I'm so glad we have this in our Bibles because this is some of the most fascinating and engaging stuff in the Bible. Jesus is alive. And he's going around telling people about it. It's great. And, you know, Jesus is raised from the dead. But it's not like Lazarus was raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead to die again, poor guy. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead like that. Jesus was raised to new life to never die again. And in that way, the Apostle Paul says it's a kind of first fruits of our own resurrection. This is what we have to look forward to. So as we look at John 20 and 21, it's like, oh, wow, this happened to Jesus. This is going to happen to us, too. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to cover, we're not going to cover all of John 20 and 21. There's too much there. But just a small section of this. Uh, and then week by week, we'll look at these resurrection appearances of Jesus. Last week, we talked about what happened on Easter Sunday. Well, the events of this morning's passage happened on Easter Sunday, too, 2,000 years ago. Jesus was busy on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago. He had a lot to do. And he's going to teach us some stuff today about how his resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. And those changes that Jesus initiates here with his resurrection, those changes impact us today just as much as they did Jesus' disciples 2,000 years ago. So here we go. Here's your outline for today. I'm going to give you four results of the resurrection, four things that Jesus' resurrection cures in our world, in our lives. Here's the first one. Jesus' resurrection provides a cure for grief. For grief. The Apostle Paul says, We do not grieve as others do who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Do we grieve? Do we grieve in this world? Yes, we do grieve. But we don't hopelessly grieve. Y'all with me? And if you want to add that word hopeless, that qualifier there for point one, I'm fine with that. Jesus' resurrection provides a cure for hopeless grief. And we anticipate a day in eternity when there will be no more grieving, there will be no more crying, there will be no mourning, there will be no sadness. Are y'all looking forward to that? I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be great. Why do we look forward to that? Why do we have that hope? Why can we count on that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why. I feel a little loud. Can you turn me down just a little bit? Everybody's hair is blowing back in the front row. <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead, and that's our hope. So let's see this hope in action in verse 11. You got your Bibles open, ready to go here? John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. 
And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. If you remember last week, Mary was the first person on the scene at the tomb Sunday morning. She was the first person to see the the stone rolled away from the tomb. And she ran to the disciples. And then Peter and John ran to the tomb to investigate what was going on. Peter saw the empty tomb. He was confused. John saw the empty tomb and believed that Jesus' resurrection was real. But neither of these men bothered to tell Mary anything. They just la-di-da went back to the upper room. Typical men, right? (laughs) Failure to communicate. So poor Mary here, she's clueless as she's approaching the tomb again in verse 11. And the text says that she was weeping. And the word for weeping here in Greek is the word klio. And it, it indicates wailing and deep mourning. This kind of weeping, this kind of wailing was common for people during, you know, after the death of a loved one. It's common in Jewish culture to do this actually for seven days after the death of a loved one. And of course, Mary isn't just distraught because of the death of Jesus. She's also distraught because the body, his body has been moved or disturbed in some way. I mean, that would be, I mean, that would be distressing for the Jews 2,000 years ago. That would be distressing for you as well. If your loved ones, if their grave was somehow disturbed or, or even worse, disinterred, that would be upsetting to you. She's upset. So Mary is weeping bitterly, Clio. By the way, that's the same word that's used to describe Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. When Lazarus died, this, this was the word that was used. She was crying. She was weeping. She was wailing bitterly. And it's actually the same word that Jesus used when he prophesied at the Last Supper. Jesus said this in John 16, verse 20. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep, Clio. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What in the world did Jesus mean by that? This is before his death. What did he mean by that? Your weeping will turn to rejoicing. Your sorrow will turn to joy. We're about to find out. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 12. And as she wept, here's Mary, distraught, stooped and looked into the tomb. And and she saw in this tomb two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. So remember now, there inside this tomb, I told you last week, there's this, this slab where they would lay the body uh, horizontally. I called it last week a concrete slab. That was an error. Concrete wasn't invented until the 19th century, so my bad. That, it wasn't concrete, but you, but you get the idea. It was a stone slab that they would put the body on until it decomposed, and then they would gather up the bones. So here on this stone slab, as Mary peeks in and looks, there's no body. There's no body. And instead, there's something curious. There's these two angels there. And you know, that's curious, right? Like, what's, what's going on with that? Here's what I think's going on, at least part of it. These are the testimonies to Jesus' resurrection. You need two to testify, to give testimony. We've got two witnesses here. And they're angels. And if you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was from the Old Testament. It was designed with the mercy seat on top to have two angels that would be stretched out over the mercy seat. Then they would take the blood of those animals and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat as, a, as an atonement ritual for the Old Testament Israelites. So what, what, what's described here in John is a kind of new Ark of the Covenant, if you will, with two angels signifying that the once for all payment for sin has been made. And there's no, you know, unlike dead animals that stay dead, Jesus is better than those animals. You might say, why is Jesus better than bulls and goats and so forth, the Old Testament sacrifices in their blood? You might say, "Mm, well, it's because Jesus is the son of God, obviously. Yes, there's also another reason. It's because Jesus didn't stay dead. You can't say that about Old Testament animals. You can't say that about sacrifices. Your cat may have nine lives, but eventually little Fluffy's going to die and be dead, all right? And he's not coming back. She's not coming back. Jesus came back. He's a true and better sacrifice. That's what's being signified here. So this situation with the angels, 
They're just chilling in Joseph's tomb, you know, just sitting there waiting for people to show up so they can testify. Jesus isn't here anymore. He's not here. It's a strange scene. It gets stranger. Look at verse 13. Then they, the angels, said to her, Mary, she's looking in. And there's, there's, a, there's a mild rebuke here. Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? If this were a movie, one of these angels should be played by Tom Hanks, okay? Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying in resurrection. Baseball in resurrection. You can't cry in those things, Mary. And she says, here's why she's distraught. She doesn't get it. She says, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now, this is really amazing to me because usually when angels show up, people hit the deck and they're fearful for their lives. And they should be. Angels got a lot of power. But she's not afraid. I I think she is so distraught about Jesus. She can't get past that. She's so sure that someone has, you know, done something nefarious with the body of Jesus that that's all she can think of. And like I said last week, she's Greyfriars Bobby. She's waiting on, where's where's Jesus' dead body? That's all I care about right now. And watch this. This is when it gets really good. Look at verse 14. And having said this, in desperation, what'd you do with the body? She turned around and saw Jesus standing. Hell, there he is, raised from the dead. But she didn't know it was Jesus. How did she not know it was Jesus? He's right there. I don't know. Maybe the tears in her eyes were clouding her vision. Maybe, maybe his visage had been so marred in the last few moments of his life that she forgot what he looked like before that. You know, when, when Jesus shows up in these resurrection appearances and they, you know, in, in the different gospel accounts, oftentimes he's not recognized, but he's recognized. Have you noticed that? It's like, he's there, but he's not there. I, say, I don't see, oh, I do see him. And you get the sense that there's, there's continuity and discontinuity with Jesus from his pre-resurrection state to his post-resurrection state. Like, he's recognizable, but he's different. He's like a, a perfect version of himself. And it makes me think about our, our resurrections. Like, what are we going to look like in our resurrection bodies? We'll be recognizable, but we'll be, we'll be different in some way. We'll be better. We'll be perfected. The perfect version of ourselves. That's what I think, anyway. So Mary... Here's Mary. She sees Jesus, but she doesn't see Jesus, you know? So what happens next? Jesus says to her as well, woman, why are you weeping? There's no crying in resurrection. Mary, whom are you seeking? Jesus asks. And Mary, clueless at this moment, supposing him to be the gardener, (laughs) She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. (laughs) This is such a precious picture of this woman and her love for Jesus. I don't think I said this last week, but Mary, Mary Magdalene, she had been through a lot in her life. She'd been through a lot of stuff. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. She was a tortured and miserable person before she met Jesus. And Jesus said that those who are forgiven much love much. And that's Mary. She has been forgiven much. She has been saved from much by Jesus, by the the blood of Jesus now. And I think that's why she can't get over him. She can't move past him. She's still distraught about Jesus. She's still grieving over him. And her grief is blinding her from seeing Jesus. It's interesting to me how, you know, this, this relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus, this, this, you know, male, female, strictly platonic relationship. It's like, it's like the world can't make sense of that. So throughout the centuries, people have assumed something, something going on between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Maybe, you know, maybe she was his wife. Maybe she was his love interest. 
And the, I mean, the world just can't make sense of non-sexual love and friendship between a man and a woman. Like, they don't get it. But that's what we have here. We have friendship. We have love. We have commitment to one another. That's what Jesus shows us. And Mary loves Jesus. And he loved her too. He loves her too. And I just got to say this, you know, we live in a, we live in a me too world where there are a lot of men with power that abuse that power to the detriment of women, the, the Harvey Weinsteins of this world. Y'all all listening? Jesus is not like that. His love for this woman and other women too is holy and wholesome and good. That's why he's our Lord. That's why he's our Savior. That truth about Jesus makes me love him all the more. You might say, well, that's not true of all religious leaders out there, even within the church. Yeah, I concede that, but it's true of Jesus. It's true of our Lord. And as evidence of Jesus' love for Mary, watch how he responds to her in verse 16. Actually, he just just says one word to snap her out of whatever lack of clarity she has. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and it must have been the tone of Jesus' voice. It must have been the way that he said it that was the trigger. Because in that moment, she, she hears him. She hears him say her name and she recognizes him and she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is not a time for crying, Mary. This is not a time for bitter weeping. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. And his resurrection provides a cure for grief. All grief in this world that is bitter and hopeless. Are you going to grieve in this life, Harvest Decatur? Are you going to grieve? Yes, you are. But you're not going to grieve without hope. Are you going to hurt in this world? Are you going to endure suffering? Some of you I know in this room, this has been a year of grieving and mourning and struggle. Some of you are going to agonize as you age and as you near death. And there will be a grief associated with that. Some of you will watch loved ones die and that will be grief inducing. But you know what, Harvest Decatur? We do not grieve like those who do not have hope. Do you know why? Do you know why? You know why. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead and you will too someday. There's nothing in this life that's so terrible that you can't have hope in the midst of it in light of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the cure for terrible. It's the cure for grief. I grant you, there's some terrible things in this world. There's some terrible things that are going to happen to us in this world, on this side of eternity. Jesus' resurrection is the cure for terrible. Jesus' resurrection is the cure for grief. Now watch what happens next, because what Jesus says to Mary next might at first glance seem harsh. It's actually beautiful and precious what he says. Let's just unpack this a little bit. You know, once Mary finds out who Jesus is and that he's, he's not the gardener, I can only imagine what she does. She probably falls at his feet, starts to kiss them. She probably grabs a hold of Jesus and, you know, makes sure he's not a ghost. And then once she has a hold of him, you know, she's, she's not letting go. Not, he's not getting away from her again. She's going to grab on, hold on, cling on to him. I'm not losing you again, Jesus. Something like that must have happened because look what Jesus says in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. And to that you might say, come on, Jesus, come on. She's happy. You know, just let her cling to you for a little bit. Cut her some slack, would you, Jesus? She's, she's overcome with joy at the, the, the fact that you're raised from the dead. Well, Jesus has work to do. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus needs to get back to the Father. And 
you know, part of that involves Jesus sending his Holy Spirit. And, and I think there's probably some confusion on her part. She's like, oh, Jesus, you're back. We're going to go back into the countryside together. And, you know, you're going to teach and we're going to listen. And you're going you're to heal people and baptize people. It will be just like the old days all over again. And what she doesn't understand in this moment, she, Jesus is back, but he's not really back. He's not back in the same way. Are you all with me? And she called him rabbi. And yeah, Jesus is a rabbi, but he's so much more than rabbi Jesus. And he tells her, I have to ascend to the father. I'm going home. Eventually I'm leaving you. So don't cling to me and think it's going to be just like it was because it won't be. But you know what? It'll actually be better because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he's going to help you to do all the things that I've commanded you to do. More on that later with the Holy Spirit. And then he gives her this message in verse 17, which is astounding. Not only is she the first person to see Jesus' resurrected body, what a privilege that must have been. She's the first. She's not only the first to do that, she's also the first missionary sent out by Jesus with a message. Jesus says, don't cling to me because I got work to do, Mary. And you know what? You got work to do too. I got a message for you. I need you to get to somebody. And here it is. He says, but go to my brothers. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Now, don't read that too quickly. That is a fabulous statement by Jesus. I want us to just linger on this for a second here. Jesus says, what does he say? Go to my brothers. You're like, what? His, you mean, do you mean his your disciples, Jesus? Did you make a mistake here? Your brothers? Like they're your brothers? What? what? And also Jesus says, my father and your father. To that you might say, your father? Whose who's father? Since when did God become father to the disciples? What's going on here? Just a little note of Bene here. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the language of God as father is pretty rare. It's in the Old Testament. But it's pretty rare for Israelites to refer to God as their father. More often than not, God is referred to as Yahweh, the great I am, or Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, or El Shaddai, God Almighty, or Yahweh Savaot, you know, Lord of hosts. That's typically how God is uh, referred to, variations of names like that. The fatherhood of God, this idea of the fatherhood of, is pretty rare in the Old Testament. And that's why when Jesus shows up and says, my father, my father, my father, my father in heaven, everybody gets nervous. Pharisees don't like that. That, that, you know, sense of, of relationship with the Father, that that's that tight-knit like that. And theologically, we can understand that Jesus, as the Son, he has every right to call God the Father his Father, right? We get that, right? But, but here's the question. Can we call God our Father? Can we do that? How does that work? And how does Jesus call his disciples brothers? You know, I, I'm cognizant this morning that whenever Mike Vernon prays, he always starts with Father. Uh, it's, it's different than me, and some of y'all do that too. You, you pray and you, you refer to God as you're praying as Father. Can he do that? Is that okay? You better believe it's okay. Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's because of Jesus, because of what he's done, that we actually become the children of God and can call out to God as our Father. Galatians 4, 4 says similarly, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, Harvest Decatur? Do you now? You can do this if you are a child of God. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Some of you might say, okay, that's good, Pastor Tony. I refer to God as my Father. I'm, thanks for giving me permission. But Jesus as our brother Maybe that strikes you as odd. Jesus is maybe, 
Maybe that's kind of weird to you. It is kind of weird, but it's biblical. Hebrews 2.11, for he who is sanctified and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's big brother, Jesus. You thought it was the government. It's not. It's Jesus. <laughs> Romans 8.29, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And by the way, ladies of Harvest Decatur, you know, don't be put off by the masculine language of that passage. Sonship is equivalent to inheritance in the Jewish world. So to speak of you as sons, that, that means you are heirs and co-heirs with Christ of the inheritance that God gives, just like a son of the Father in the Old Testament. Because in Christ, Paul tells us, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Jesus Christ came to save all the Peters and Johns of this world, but he also came to save all the Mary Magdalene's of this world. He also came to save all the Mary and Martha's of this world. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry, but also every Jill, Jane, and Sally. Every person, every male or female, who by faith embraces Jesus Christ as their Savior, his death as payment for your sin, and his resurrection as new life. You are a child of God if, that, if that's you. And Jesus is your brother. He's your king. He's your Lord. Yeah, he's also, it is weird. I admit it. I don't completely understand it. Brother Jesus, firstborn, first fruits of our own salvation, our own child of God status. Go ahead and write this down as number two. Jesus' resurrection provides a cure for grief. It also provides a cure for displacement. Here's what I mean by that. Adam and Eve, their sin in the Garden of Eden led to sin and separation from God. They were displaced because God is holy. And he couldn't have relationship with beings that were tainted by sin. So God set about a plan that would defeat sin and redeem all the sons of and daughters of Adam and Eve. He even foreshadowed that in the garden with the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus came and he died, and every person who embraces Jesus Christ as their Savior can actually become a child of God, call God Abba, Father. It's, It's as if we're restored to that garden, but even to a place that's better, because now we're we're. We're restored, we're reconciled to a place of kinship with God's Son, Jesus, and God the Father. So Mary Magdalene has this great message, and as a dutiful servant of Christ Jesus, she takes this message. She obeys Jesus. She doesn't cling to him. She's got work to do. Jesus also has work to do. Look at verse 18. So Mary Magdalene dutifully went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she also announced all that he had said to her. Notice she doesn't say, I saw Rabbi Jesus. (laughs) She doesn't say that. I've seen the Lord. And she relays this message to the disciples. That's Mary Magdalene, folks. That's Mary Magdalene. This is the last time that she's mentioned in the Gospel of John, and it's actually the last time she's explicitly mentioned in the Bible. But oh, what a privileged place she holds in the kingdom of God. The first person to see Jesus resurrected. Someday we'll meet her, and we can talk about it. You were the first, huh? That's great. Fantastic. What was it like? Why didn't you, why weren't you afraid of the angels? You know, I would have hit the deck, fearful for my life. And she was the first person that Jesus sent out as a missionary, the first ambassador for Christ, telling people about the resurrection. Let me just say this, Harvest Decatur, throughout the centuries, lies have been put forth about Mary Magdalene and her relationship with Jesus. And I don't want you to believe those. Was she a son? Was she a sinner? You might ask, was she a sinner? 
Sure she was. Can I let you in on something? So are you. You know, if you're not sure about that, you can, you can talk to Gregory Goals. He'll clear you up on that. <laughs> Got baptized last week. You know, he's a little theologian in training. He knows all about sin. Yeah, she was a sinner before she met Christ. Actually, she was a mess before she met Christ. But she's an honored woman in the kingdom of God, and she's a daughter of God purchased by Jesus' blood, raised to new life as a result of the resurrection. Let's transition from her. Here's what happens next. So Mary goes and she delivers this message to the disciples. And, you know, Mary's, it's a great message. Mary's got a great message from Jesus to the disciples. But, you know, the the disciples didn't receive this message with as much hoopla as they should have. And we know from Luke's Gospels that, that actually the disciples didn't believe Mary. The disciples could be a little hard-headed sometimes. And here's an instance of this. So, you know, what Jesus, like, Jesus decides, I guess, they need an intervention. I'm just going to show up. So <laughs> look at verse 19. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it's still, it's still the first Easter. It's still Sunday, but now it's Sunday evening, not Sunday morning. And the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So let me, let me just paint the picture here. Mary's out there looking for Jesus' body on Sunday. She's not afraid. Even you know, She saw angels. She's not even afraid. She's just confused about Jesus. But these other guys, other than Peter and John, they haven't left their locked room. Why? Because they're, they're fraidy cats, okay? They're scared. And remember, you know, when Jesus was arrested, most of these guys, they were afraid for their lives, and they just took off and left Jesus. It was the women who stood by Jesus at the crucifixion, the women and John the apostle. The other disciples were nowhere to be found, and Jesus was right when he quoted about them from the scriptures, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's what they did. They scattered, they dispersed, and now they're, they're holed up afraid for their lives. And I'll say this in fairness to these men, to these disciples, you know, the Romans and the Jews uh, were much more inclined to execute a man than they would a woman. Most crucified victims were men, uh, if not all. And so in a sense, they were right to be afraid, especially if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And especially if there are enemies of Jesus out there right now, rounding up the co-conspirators. So they're So they're locked in this room. They're fearing for their lives. And then all of a sudden, this happens. And Jesus came. The doors were locked. They were locked. And, you know, just like Jesus passing through his grave clothes, just shows up. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. If I were Jesus, I would say, you lousy numbskulls, what are you doing in here? But Jesus is more gracious than me. Praise the name of the Lord. And he says, peace be with you. And I can only imagine what they said after that. Whoa, how'd you get in here? What? Wait, how are you alive? What is going on? If you could just indulge me for a second, I want to read Luke's account of this just to give some added context here. I usually don't do this, but I want to, add a little bit of detail to what happens here. So here's what Luke writes. You can read this on the screen. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they were still disbelieving because of, for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? (laughs) And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it beforehand before them look at what John writes in verse 20 it's a nice little synopsis of what we read in Luke 24 John says when he had said this peace be with you he showed them his hands and his side then the disciples were glad 
when they saw the Lord. They were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. You know what? Can I just step out of the story for a moment? You would be too if Jesus showed up right now here in the flesh. Nothing would make me gladder than for Jesus to come back right now. Someday we will see him in the flesh. Someday we will. Go ahead and write this down as number three. Jesus' resurrection provides a cure for fear. Y'all remember what I asked you last week? Do you have an answer for this yet? How did this group of lily-livered, scaredy-cat disciples go from cowering in fear in Jerusalem to men who just a few days later were, were willing to risk their lives and die in the preaching of the gospel? How'd that happen? And, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, it's because they... They pretended that Jesus rose from the dead. They concocted this story. People don't die for concocted stories. People don't risk their lives after they fabricate something. I don't think that's what happened. You know what? You know how I answer that? You know how they went from scaredy cats to brave followers of Jesus preaching his name? They saw Jesus, they saw him alive. They saw Jesus' resurrected body and it melted their fear. Jesus said, peace, and they were at peace, finally. How else do you explain the transformation? Like Mary Magdalene, their sorrow was turned to rejoicing. Their fear was turned to joy in that moment of seeing Jesus. Tell me if you've heard this before. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. That's what happened to them. They saw Jesus alive. They believed. And the fear disappeared. Let me ask you this, church. Are we going to experience fear in this life? Are we? Yeah, we are. We do. We worry. We fear. We get anxieties. It's kind of like what I said about grief earlier. Yeah, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We fear, yes, but we don't fear as those who have no hope. You're worried about your job? You're worried about loss of employment? Yeah, you might fear loss of employment, but we don't fear like those who have no hope. You're afraid of death? You're afraid of the, the declining health of your loved ones? Yeah, I get that. But we don't fear like those who have no hope. And why do we have hope? Because Jesus' resurrection has provided a cure for fear and someday we'll enter into that place of eternity. There'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more grieving, there'll be no more fear ever again, no more anxiety ever again. No more worry, no more concern, no more aging, no more health issues. And even on this side of eternity, we know that God loves us perfectly and perfect love casts out fear. If you know that, What's the cure for anxiety? I'm anxious, Pastor Tony. I'm anxious, anxious, anxious. You know what the cure for that is? You need to understand that God loves you deeply and that your eternity with him is set. That's the cure for anxiety in this world. That's the cure for, I mean, that's really the cure for everything. Jesus' resurrection. If God is for us, who can be against us? We sing that, don't we? And if our God is for us, who can be against us? We don't just sing that song because it has a good beat, all right? There's truth in that. One more thing. I'm almost done. Here's one more result of the resurrection. 
If you've got grief, the cure is the resurrection. If you feel displaced, the cure is the resurrection. If you have fear, the cure is the resurrection. And here's one last thing that Jesus' resurrection provides a cure for. It provides a cure for idleness. Here's the temptation in this moment. You might say, woohoo, Jesus is raised from the dead. Let's just twiddle our thumbs and wait for him to come back. Let's just, you know, let's get the first bus ticket out of this hell hole if we can. Let's get out of here ASAP. You know, Jesus, I'm ready. Give me my new resurrection body right now. Why do I have to wait? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not time yet. I've got work for you to do. You might say, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to bide my time. I'm just going to dream the day away. I'm just going to sit around doing nothing, waiting for Jesus to come back. And Jesus again says, no, no, you've got work to do. You've got a mission. You've got a mission from God. Just turn to your neighbor right now and tell him that you're on a mission from God, okay? Believe it. Here's the mission. Look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. Which is funny that Jesus repeats himself. I read a commentator this last week that said, the first time Jesus said, peace be with you, it was to steal their fear. The second time he says it, it's to steal their rejoicing. So, Okay, boys, don't get carried away because I got work for you. And here's the mission. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, what's all this about? What's Jesus saying here? Let's take this apart piece by piece. The first thing that Jesus is saying is, I'm sending you into the world. I'm sending you just like the Father has sent me. Now I'm sending you on a mission. And, you know, this, this is Harvest Decatur. We know what that mission is, right? What's our mission? Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us. This is John's version of that great commission. And here, really, it, it revolves more around evangelism than disciple making, but you guys know those two things are in lockstep together. You're on a mission. Go, baptize converts, make disciples, teach people to observe all that Jesus commanded us. That's what we do. That's why we have a church. That's why we don't get saved and then whew, we go translate right into our new bodies and go on home to eternity because Jesus still has work for us to do here. And this is key too, and to empower us in that venture. You know, this is a tough work, doing what Jesus did. You're like, man, I'm overwhelmed by that. How do I do what Jesus did in this world? Well, Jesus knows you would be overwhelmed by that and you couldn't do it on your own, so he gives us his Holy Spirit to help with that. And that's what's referred to here. There's a, a deposit of that gift that's given in this passage. The full giving of the Holy Spirit comes later in Acts 2 when at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in full and empowers the people of God to do the work of God. You know, Jesus breathed on them here and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. And it, it's just like in the Old Testament when God breathed life into the nostrils of Adam and Eve and here we, we see Jesus, in a way, breathing, saving faith, breathing new life into his disciples. And by the way, let me just say this. When you accept Christ as your Savior, when you believe, when you get saved, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into your life that comes inside of you. That's a deposit of your future inheritance. I alluded to that earlier. And that's the power that we need to live for Jesus. That's the power that we need to accomplish this mission. That's the power we need to, to do the work of discipleship. That's the power that we need to, to preach and to tell people about Jesus. Every week when I go to small group, Sonny and I, we, we pray. Holy Spirit, work, grow us as disciples, teach us, make us more like disciples. Every Sunday, Holy Spirit, help me preach, help me teach, help me make disciples. Do your work. I can't do this on my own. I need you, Holy Spirit. 
We can't do anything as a church without the Holy Spirit. And God in his goodness and his generosity has given us the Holy Spirit to do this work. Some of you might ask, well, what's the difference between John 20 and Acts 2? The best sense that I can make of verse 22 and how that squares with Acts 2 is I see this as kind of a down payment of the Holy Spirit. And the full payment, so to speak, is given later in Acts 2. So this is how John Calvin explains it. He's a little more eloquent than I am. He says the disciples in John 20 verse 22 are sprinkled with the grace of the spirit, but not saturated with the full endowment of his power until Acts 2. So that's what's going on here. John knows all about Acts 2. He knows about the Holy Spirit coming in full. He's just letting us know that there was a precursor to that on the day of Jesus's resurrection. So here's the harder statement to understand and apply, and it's verse 23. I spent a fair amount of time wrestling with this yesterday, so bear with me. I want to help you understand this as best I can. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does Jesus mean by that? Does that mean that we as disciples, does that mean that those disciples or we as disciples have the power to forgive and not forgive sin? Does that mean that we as a church have a pow- have the power to forgive or not to forgive sin? That's a terrifying thought. I sure hope that's not the case because I don't want that authority. No, I don't think that's what this means. When Jesus says they are forgiving them, and it is withheld, sorry, they are forgiven them, and it is withheld. Both of those verbs, stay with me here, this is a little technical. Both of those verbs in Greek are passive verbs, and that's what theologians refer to as divine passives. In other words, God is doing the work. He does the forgiving. He does the withholding of sin. And our part is to preach and to proclaim, and also there's a discerning. As we see the forgiveness in their life bear fruit, you know, bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, we know that God must have forgiven this person, and they're moving in that direction. And similarly, on the other side of it, if we see somebody who's not bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, and they're going the wrong direction, and we say, hey, listen, there's a real place called hell. There's a real thing called sin that's in your life. And you better, be, you better watch yourself. You better embrace Christ. God has given us that power, that power of proclamation, that power even of discernment to see the ways in which he is already working, to forgive and to not forgive sin. And in doing this, and in, in having that proclamation authority, if you want to say it that way, We are doing what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ as if God was making his appeal through us. Come to Christ. Receive Christ. Forgiveness of sin is possible through Christ. And if you don't, then your sins will be held against you. Forgiveness will be withheld. Now that's a high calling, church. That is, that is an incredible mission that God has given us. You are an ambassador for Christ in that way, as if God were making his appeal through you, Paul says. So do we sit around, run out the clock, wait for Christ to return? Do we sit around and just pine for eternity and complain about how bad our world is? No. I mean, yeah, we pine. I pine for Jesus. But we got work to do. We've got work to do. And just like Mary Magdalene, I think, there's still this idea. Don't cling to Jesus in the wrong way. Don't anticipate eternity right now. Get to work. Get to work. Get Get the word out about Jesus. Some of you might say, well, what if I don't want to do that, Pastor Tony? I don't want to. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be on that mission. I know some of y'all are parents, so you probably deal with the I don't want to stuff all the time, right? God's our father, and 
So maybe this is apropos. Here's what I would say about you might let me just address the what if I don't want to question I don't want to be on a mission from God I don't want to be an ambassador for Christ I don't want to tell people about Jesus I don't want to make disciples I don't really even want to go to church I just do because I don't know maybe I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my salvation or something if I don't go to church here's what I would say about that just a little sense of motivation here's something that Tim Keller's fond of saying I think it it bears repeating. He says this all the time. If you read his books, listen to his sermons, you'll hear this eventually. He says something to this effect. If Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead, then that trumps every other thing that Jesus said or did and forces us into compliance with it. Because... I mean, here's what Tim Keller's dealing with. Here's what we all deal with. There, there are people in our world, they're like, hmm, I like this about Jesus. I don't like this about Jesus. I like this thing. I don't like this thing. I like what he said about loving our enemies, but I don't like what he said about, you know, gender and adultery and divorce and all that other stuff. So I'm going to take this. I'm going to leave that. And what Keller says, if, if, Jesus, if Jesus rose from the dead, you don't get to do that. He's not your guidance counselor. He's not your life coach. He's like, well, you know, maybe you want to do that. Maybe whatever. I don't care. He's the king of kings. He's your authority. And as your king, you as his subjects, he's given you this mission. He says, go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. You're on a mission from God. You are an ambassador for Christ. As I was sent, as the Father sent me, so I send you into the world. Go and do this. And that's what we're called to do, church. Get the word out. Let people know about Jesus. And if he truly has been raised from the dead, if you really believe that, then every command, every instruction he's given us, we're obligated to obey. And you know what? It's a privilege to represent Jesus to this world, isn't it? All of you out there are Mary Magdalene's. Jesus has redeemed you, saved you, sent you on a mission. Go tell people about the resurrection. Let's do that. Let me pray to that end right now. Let's just close with a word of prayer and then we can sing a song of worship.